turn to a very brief summarization of what we hope the John Birch Society will help and even sometimes lead the American people to accomplish during the next 15 years. One, our first and most important specific undertaking should be to restore the complete independence of the United States. This This includes our resolution to get us out of the United Nations and get the United Nations out of the United States. <laughs> Two, we must once again make our money freely redeemable in gold at some realistic price. And we must take all practicable legislative steps to prevent a recurrence of the enormous thievery and other subversive crimes that have been perpetrated on the American people through a contrived inflation by every president from Franklin Roosevelt through Richard Nixon. Three. Three, we should reduce the number of government bureaus, of government civilian employees, and the whole quantity of government by at least 50%. And, and we should achieve at least this much reduction in proper fashion through gradually convincing a majority of the American people of the wisdom of such a course. Four, we should withdraw all American troops from every spot on earth that is not American soil except when and where such troops may be required as decided by Congress to protect American lives and property from criminal vandalism. Five. Five. We should get government out of the areas and functions and activities where government does not belong. Again, Again, all steps to this end should be taken gradually, but nevertheless, just as rapidly as enough of the American people can be persuaded to support such progress. Any such achievement will require a truly massive educational force, but that's exactly what we hope That to was build. Cold Warrior Robert Welsh, founder of the right-wing John Birch Society in 1974. He was reminding a group of loyal supporters what the principles of the organization were, and that those principles had not wavered since the political group's founding in 1958. Welsh would only live another decade after this speech, but his ideas lived on. The millionaire and former candy manufacturer had already changed history by creating a powerful organization that was so far right, so extreme, had so many wealthy backers and such powerful grassroots networks that other conservatives were afraid of it. Liberals mocked the Birchers, referring to them as little old ladies in tennis shoes and people who wore tinfoil hats. They scoffed at Bircher conspiracy theories, that President Dwight Eisenhower and his Republican allies were secret communists, and that water fluoridation, a public health measure taken in many communities to protect Americans' teeth, was a communist plot and an infringement of individual rights. The Birchers may have been on the fringe, but they were not insignificant. Gathering the remnants of McCarthy supporters, white supremacists, 
Libertarians, and former America Firsters under one umbrella, only four years after it was founded, the John Birch Society was playing an active role in American politics. By 1962, Birchers were running for office as Republicans, and some were winning. More often, like other ultra-right organizations that would evolve from the John Birch Society, during campaign seasons, Birchers provided an army of willing labor for far-right Republicans trying to topple the Eastern elite establishment that the Birch-affiliated activist Phyllis Schlafly dubbed the Kingmakers in her 1964 self-published book, A Choice, Not an Echo. Who were the Kingmakers? They were the business and political establishment within the GOP, Schlafly charged, who foisted candidates on the people. These soft conservatives, who would later be derided as squishes, were comfortable with the status quo. They were soft on communism, spent taxpayer dollars on foreign entanglements, believed in big government, and left Americans vulnerable to crime, immigrants, and the whims of international financial interests. And in 1964, the Birchers got their candidate, Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. Although Goldwater was not a member of the John Birch Society, he certainly sounded like one in his acceptance speech in San Francisco. Let our republicanism so focused and so dedicated not be made fuzzy and futile by unthinking and stupid labels. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Most Americans found the possibility that Goldwater was aligned with the Birchers to be terrifying. He was soundly defeated, and the society lost much of its cohesion and power by the end of the decade. But the effort to elect Goldwater had strengthened ultra-conservatives in the GOP, and they continued to organize. Bircher ideas took hold in the Republican Party in the following decades, and they began to build new conservative institutions. In this way, Bircherism became part of the populist Republican insurgency that elected Ronald Reagan in 1980, promoted the presidential candidacy of Patrick J. Buchanan in 1992, strengthened the 2008 presidential bid of libertarian Ron Paul, produced the Tea Party, and elected the Tea Party's congressional arm, the Republican Freedom Caucus. Listeners may remember that the Freedom Caucus bent the Republican Party to its will during the contested election of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in January 2023. And we all know that since the 2016 election, Welsh's ideas have become the conservative mainstream. Isolationism, returning to the gold standard, a government plot to weaken the American people and make them vulnerable to international financial elites, slashing the federal government, parents' rights, using the military against civilians, states' rights, and xenophobia. But what else does Welsh say? That the Birch Society would engage in an educational project that would bear fruit in 50 years. Let's do the math. 1974 plus 50 is 2024. But I do it again because I love you and I love our country. Thank you.
I watch on television the other day people having homes that are just being invaded. And the real number, in my opinion, you know, they like to say four million people, three million people, maybe every once in a while you hear four and a half. In my opinion, by the end of this year, it'll be 15 million people will have come into this country, not four million or five million, 15 million, which is bigger than New York State. But they're flooding your towns with deadly drugs, selling your jobs to China, mutilating your children. They're mutilating your children. Who would have thought 12 years ago a thing like that to say would be ridiculous? Nobody would know what you're even talking about. Setting fire to your life savings, releasing violent criminals to prey on innocent people. We have so many people pouring in, and so many of these people are not the people you want coming into our country. Justice will only be done when we have thrown this repulsive political class the hell out of office. We have to get them out. That's why I picked up Matthew Dalek's new book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right, out this spring from Basic Books. It's why I'm inviting you to join Matt and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 20, Extremism in Defense of Liberty is No Vice. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Claire, for having me here. Well, I'm so excited about your book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. And I have to tell you, I wasn't quite sure what to expect because being the age I am, I grew up with my parents and my grandparents making jokes and snickering about uh, the little old ladies in tennis shoes and the conspiracists in tinfoil hats and, and so on. But who were the John Birch Society? I mean, they weren't just a bunch of fringy, crazy people, were they? No, uh, a lot of them were very much in the mainstream, as one would define the mainstream in the late 50s and 1960s. It was founded by a dozen mostly industrialists, uh, people like Robert Welch, the founder, but also Bill uh, Grady. Uh, who was a, a major industrialist in Wisconsin. You know, Grady, for example, was at one point, uh, he led the YMCA. You know, it's hard to get more mainstream than that. And then as they recruited more members, uh, a lot of them were professionals. They were doctors and dentists and lawyers, small business owners. So um, they were very much rooted in uh, society and in their communities. And, and they were quite wealthy too, a lot of them, especially early on. The society actually is initiated somewhat late in the Cold War, in the late 1950s, 1958, I think, right? So that's that's really somewhat late for a new anti-communist movement because communism in the United States is kind of folding. So why did these industrialists decide that it was time to revive a hard anti-communist movement? Well, remember, of course, that uh, Joe McCarthy, who was a hero to a lot of Birchers, was dead. 
and had been censured and pushed out of the Senate in 1954. And McCarthy was seen as really the leader of this hardline anti-communist movement, the focus on on domestic left-wing communists that needed to be rooted out in government. Uh, And Robert Taft, the senator from Ohio, who was a hero to uh, Robert Welch and others uh, in the Birchers, uh, he had been deprived, as they saw it, of the Republican nomination. And so I think it in part was the decades-long frustration and fury at the New Deal, but also a more immediate trigger is basically the sixth year of the Eisenhower administration and a sense that Eisenhower and the Republican Party, the major vehicle for this hardline anti-communist movement, that that vehicle was part of the communist conspiracy. And so that frustration built. Welch and others looked around the scene. They, they didn't think there was a direct action movement that could do work within their communities. And so they, uh, they formed their own group. So Matt, we can always have fun with conspiracies. Tell us about the conspiracy theories that the John Birch Society promulgated early on. Well, there were a couple early on. Um, the most infamous single conspiracy theory for which society became notorious, and and Robert Welch, the founder, uh, a former candy manufacturer, became notorious, was Welch's charge that Dwight Eisenhower was a dedicated agent of the communist conspiracy. And that idea, when it was revealed, that, that charge, it became a kind of shorthand to a lot of Americans for this group is absurd. You know, they're paranoid, right? As the, you know, to use a a, a word from the times. The society more broadly uh, distanced itself, or at least attempted to distance itself from that Eisenhower theory and argued that the whole drift of American life and American institutions had been communistic for several decades. And that uh, the communists uh, had a, a, a control of a good chunk of government, Uh, mass media, higher education, um, even some churches uh, and other uh, uh, religious institutions. And so um, the idea was that they had to educate the masses in order to turn back this tide. And that the greatest threat to the United States was not necessarily Soviet nukes. It was uh, these internal communist conspirators who were destroying the fabric of American freedom and ideals from within. Yeah, and and I'm so glad you brought up McCarthy because I think a lot of people forget that Joe McCarthy, when he was disgraced in 1954-55, actually was not disgraced among the people who cared about him. And as late as the 1960s, there are people in Wisconsin with pictures of Joe McCarthy on their wall. Absolutely. And and some Birchers had uh, uh, photos of Joe McCarthy. And it wasn't just Birchers, right? I, I think Bill Buckley uh, co-authored a book defending uh, McCarthy from his critics. So uh, McCarthy offered a kind of living a legacy of sorts, right? I think a lot of the Birch leaders in particular felt like they wanted to extend it, right? They wanted to take up his mantle. What was interesting, and I was totally surprised by this when I was doing my research, Wisconsin, where uh, McCarthy, of course, is from, Wisconsin was a real hotbed of the Birch Society. Some of its leaders were there. I think the first meeting after its founding was held, its first recruitment meeting was held, uh, in a, a suburb of Milwaukee. And it was a real kind of hotbed that, 
you know, I think is in part at least related to this sense that McCarthy was wronged. He was vilified unfairly, and we need to keep his legacy and his ideas alive. Yeah. And, you know, there there are all kinds of martyrs that, that emerge in the 1950s and 1960s, you know, martyrs to communism. And McCarthy is obviously chief among them, but another one of them is John Birch. Who was John Birch? So John Birch was an evangelist who uh, went into the army and became an army intelligence officer and served, I believe, with the Flying Tigers during World War II in China and uh, in the Pacific Front. And John Birch was uh, killed by Mao's communist forces 10 days after the end of World War II. I don't think most Americans knew his name or had heard of him, but Robert Welch, again, the founder of the Birch Society, who was uh, heavily involved in anti-communist causes, he got together basically with a senator from California, Bill Noland. And my understanding is that Noland helped Welch gain access to records about Birch's life and also his murder. And Welch wrote a book about Birch, again, portraying him, as you say so well, right, as a martyr. The thing about, about it was it, the, what was evil in Welch's mind was not as so much that he was killed by Mao's communist forces. It was that his murder by communists was covered up by uh, State Department officials and others inside the United States. That was the, the allegation, and that was part of the conspiracy. And that's what propelled, in a sense, uh, Welch and a lot of other uh, Birch leaders, that there was something rotten at the core. And even though American governments and the Truman and Eisenhower administrations claimed to be fighting communism. They were actually doing the communist dirty work. So Birch, they took his name, uh, the first victim of World War III, and it was a brilliant marketing strategy in a way, right? It, it really, uh, you know, Welch was a great salesman and he was able to brand this movement in a very uh, shrewd way. I like it that you bring up politics and salesmanship in the same sentence, because of course that remains a theme of the right, and it's a big theme today. But you mentioned William F. Buckley earlier, and Buckley has usually been portrayed as the person who sort of purged his organizations of Birchers, sort of drew the line between cons conservatism and the extreme right. But that's not the whole story, is it? No, it's not. And I did a pretty long article excerpted from the book in Politico about Buckley and the Birchers. And yeah, I think it's it's a complicated story, but I agree with younger generation of historians who have essentially come along and said, you know, this is really a myth, right? Buckley did not excommunicate the Birchers. My sense after, you know, researching and writing this book is that no one, no single person had the power, the authority to banish the Birch Society or banish the fringe. Buckley did write a couple of uh, editorials. He uh, worked with Barry Goldwater to make some efforts to marginalize more Robert Welch, who they thought was kind of a crackpot, and they thought some of his theories were a little bit nuts. But uh, Buckley was not really interested in excommunicating like the average Birch member, right? That, that the rank and file, some of whom subscribed to National Review, some of whom were uh, supporters, and they were you know, Buckley and his editors on his, on staff, they're very worried about alienating a lot of conservatives. And they, they thought, as Goldwater had said, that, look, a lot of Birchers are good 
conservatives. You know, they're just, it's just Welch who is kind of wacky and his conspiracy theories need to be read out of the movement. This is a theme, of course, that resonates very much today. You've got an extreme right that is not powerful enough by itself to do anything, but is certainly powerful enough to bring other conservatives with them, to have other conservatives think, well, we can bring them in and then we can kind of neutralize the things we don't like. And Barry Goldwater is one of those people. I mean, Goldwater has Birch connections before he runs for president in 1964. But then when he actually gets the nomination, he's got a problem, doesn't he? And if we back up and look at what happened to Richard Nixon in 1962. So Nixon, Eisenhower's vice president, returns to California, ran for governor of California against the Democrat Pat Brown, and uh, was seen as really a political giant. Um, Yet, Nixon came out quite strongly against the Birch Society. Uh, He had a primary challenge against a guy named Joseph Schell, who was not a a member of the Birch Society, but had this, enjoyed the support of many Birchers, who were, of course, who were strong in California. Schell took a third of the primary vote. Nixon won the nomination, but went on to lose the general. And that became a bit of an object lesson for folks like Goldwater, who realize, I think, and to some extent rightly, that you cannot go too far in alienating at least parts of the base. And Goldwater was very much, I think he embraced to some extent Bershers, especially when he uh, was trying to get the nomination. And in his famous convention address in 1964, he proclaims that extremism and defense of liberty is no vice. And because the Bershers were such a massive national controversy. That statement, I think, was seen as essentially a defense of butcherism, of this hardline anti-communist, even if Goldwater didn't necessarily intend it that way. And of course, Goldwater was painted as an extremist, and it was very hard for him at that point to distance himself, um, even though he tried. And, And the last thing I'll say is in the book, I actually have these really interesting letters between Goldwater and a couple of Birch leaders after he ran for president. And these Birch leaders are furious at Goldwater because Goldwater says some things after he lost six in 64 that are very critical of the Birch Society, like even more strongly critical. And he's alienated, he alienated some of these Birch founders and they're accusing him of basically cracking apart the conservative coalition, towing the communist line. So all was not kind of hunky-dory. Uh, and this is also true of Buckley. I mean, Buckley faced a lot of blowback from Birch leaders as well. So they're kind of on the horns of a dilemma. And watching them try to wrestle through that dilemma, I think, is a really interesting historical look. And, and I agree, it does resonate today. And Goldwater, of course, held some positions that were openly Bircher. I mean, he didn't call them Bircher, but but they were positions held by the John Birch Society. So, you know, what we really see with Goldwater is something that I think repeats throughout the rest of the book, which is people sort of taking on these positions without explicitly identifying as Birchers. And yet those traditions grow and flourish in the Republican Party. So Goldwater and others do adopt some positions that a lot of Birch members support. So, for example, the issue of law and order. The Birch Society developed a front group. They, they put together front groups. And one of the more important front groups they uh, formed was support your local police. And Goldwater in 64 picked up on this theme of uh, law and order and morality 
and a defense against these, you know, libertine, socialistic, un-American forces that were that were contributing to chaos. Now, was he was he adopting the Birch line? I mean, it was sort of in the atmosphere, right? So they did align on some issues. But what I also argue in the book is that Goldwater, Reagan, Nixon, and, and many other Republicans also, when they got into office, especially governed in ways that frustrated the Bircher agenda or the agenda of their, their successors or ideological successors. And that dynamic, right, that Republican leaders, movement conservatives needed at times Birch energy and votes and, and the activism and the money. And they sometimes appeal to them in their campaigns, but at the same time on issues like internationalism, right, versus anti-interventionism, on conspiracy theories, uh, even on culture war issues where, you know, people like Reagan were not able to uh, implement very much in office. Immigration, sovereignty, you can go down uh, uh, the list. A lot of the fringe felt very frustrated. And so I try to trace that dynamic in the book. You do a very good job of that. And it's just shocking. And and I hope our listeners will go and get the book and see what they recognize in these early years. I mean, when I see support your local police, I hear back the blue. You know, these things, maybe we've changed the language a little bit, but in some cases we haven't changed the language. And I want to speak to this frustration you're talking to, because that frustration really peaks after the Birch Society as a cohesive group has lost some of its momentum. And it, it peaks at the beginning of the Reagan administration when Reagan is elected with the help of Paul Weyrich and all of these hard right guys who are very connected to Birchers. And they say, all right, now you can do an executive order to ban flag burning. Now you can do an executive order to ban abortion. And my favorite one was the executive order for school prayer, which Reagan says, oh, that's a good idea. I think I'll do that. And Strom Thurmond comes to him, and I've seen this document in the Reagan archives, Strom Thurmond comes to him and says, no, 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 you can't do that. (laughs) You actually can't do that. So there's this moment in which the right thinks that it's finally got their guy in the White House, and then they're betrayed again. I saw an interview with Larry McDonald, who was a congressman from Georgia, same area, similar to the area that Marjorie Taylor Greene represents. And McDonald is a fascinating figure, and he becomes a chairman of the Birch Society. He's a natural, national Birch leader. And McDonald is asked in 1983, shortly before his death, what he thinks of Reagan. And he says, I give him an A to a B plus because he attacked elites in his campaign. He said he wouldn't have Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission types. And I like that. But when he came into office, I'd say there are 250 of those elitists who are running the show and basically saying he is not doing what he said he would do. He's not governing in a way that he promised. I thought that story encapsulated the tension that you mentioned as well. And look, if we back up, you know, Reagan was ultimately not a bircher. He was a more capacious figure. Uh, He certainly did not uh, believe in, let's say, repudiating NATO and uh, make a big thing of trying to withdraw, excuse me, the United Nations. He believed in a a kind of muscular foreign policy. Uh, He was not typically spouting conspiracy theories with the, you know, maybe a couple of exceptions. And, you know, the culture war issues, even though he embraced that, you know, that was not his main, he was more anti-communist, right? That was more of his driving. And then, of course, just another example, 
At the, in the second term, he does a, a 180 on arms control, an about face, and he negotiates with Gorbachev. And many in the right wing, on the far right, they view him as a sellout. And they actually say so. Later on in my book, Gorbachev comes to California and Reagan gives him an award, some kind of freedom award. This is after Reagan's left office, so 1989, 1990. And there are actually a handful of butchers who are protesting Reagan and Gorbachev and saying, you know, and, and there's one quote from a Bircher who says, you know, a true Bircher never trusted Ronald Reagan. And I thought that also captured some of the dynamics, some of the spirit of the far right and their attitude toward movement conservatives and a lot of people who they saw ultimately as sellouts. Yeah. Then there's this whole other group that says, well, Ronald Reagan really would be doing these things if other people allowed him to. And, you know, let Reagan be Reagan. And so we really begin to see in the Reagan years, the beginning of this anti-institutionalism as a sort of broader movement than the John Birch Society of a range of conservative organizations, many of whom have Birchers in their leadership and in their membership and so on who are saying, you know, the problem is the Republican Party. And if if it were up to Reagan, he would do what we wanted, but the Republican Party won't let him. And this situation gets worse in the George H.W. Bush presidency, right? George H.W. Bush is seen in some ways as the ultimate traitor, right? Or as one of them, because Bush, for example, is a, a an emblem of the establishment, right? A defender of these institutions, a longtime government official, uh, former director of the CIA, and also built the international coalition working through the United Nations to kick out Saddam uh, Hussein from Kuwait. And at one point, Bush, of course, uh, Bush the father gave a speech uh, in which he proclaimed a new world order. And to the Birchers, that was like the worst phrase imaginable. And a lot of uh, people on the far right said, uh, this guy is not to be trusted. And they really hated him. And there were other issues too. But you see the Pat Buchanan challenging him, of course, famously in the Republican primary uh, in 1992 and, and doing damage to Bush politically. Well, and I think Bush is also a good example. And in a way, it's an underexamined presidency because, you know, he was only a single term and he's hard to pin down. But he's really a good example of how that balancing act that the Republican Party tried to achieve with the hard right is doomed to fail. And, you know, I mean, the other thing about Bush is that he's kind of a liberal Republican. I mean, when he was in Congress, he, he used to promote birth control and, you know, that his colleagues referred to him as rubbers Bush because because of his love for birth control. He, he, he was the last, I think, Republican president to sign a, a bipartisan a budget agreement that raised taxes, right? Yeah. He said no new taxes. And then a couple years later, he in office, he raised them. Uh, that was really a, a, a kiss of death. It was just one thing among others. It's interesting to see the memories about the Bush family and how they played out in that 2016 campaign. I know we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. But when Trump runs against Jeb Bush, Jeb Bush calls immigration an act of love. And, you know, Trump basically in part runs against the entire Bush clan. Uh, and so, yes, that that H.W. Bush one term was really, I think, a, a central moment in the modern history of the Republican Party. And, you know, Bush did try to court a lot of the hardliners in his campaign and, and you know, it didn't, didn't work out so well. Well, and as you point out in the book, it's no accident that in the backlash against George H.W. Bush, 
we see the rise of conspiracy theories around the Clintons and the connection of the Clintons to elites, to internationalists, to globalists, to pedophiles. And, uh, you know, a big part of that has to do with the internet. But part of what I enjoyed about your book is I kind of rethought that moment and said, all right, the internet is spreading them, but these conspiracy theories aren't coming from the internet. No, they're not. And, And I try to argue that the internet, as important as it is, is just a tool. And of course, at the outset of the Clinton administration, the internet is still very much in its infancy. It's it's not even a very powerful tool in uh, Clinton's first term. What I found interesting writing the book is thinking about how Birchers, Joe McCarthy, other anti-communists they, on the far right, they had conspiracy theories around communism. But of course, when communism collapsed in 89, the Soviet Union splits up and the Berlin Wall fell. What's the communist threat, right? Who are the communists? Where are they? But these conspiracy theories, what is so appealing about them is that they are pliable, right? They can be adapted and updated depending on the situation. So Claire, as you pointed out, the enemies become a new world order, globalists, financial internationalists and elites. Even Pat Robertson, when he is running for president, it's either 1988 or 92, Pat Robertson, the, the reverend uh, who uh, leads the Christ- helps lead the Christian coalition, well, at one point he published a book on, uh, it was a book of conspiracy theories about this new world order, but he also charges that, charged that the State Department had tens of thousands of, of basically traitors of un-American types. And one of his pledges, he said, was that he promised that he was going to uh, kick out all those people and replace them with real Americans who were loyal to the country. So you see these theories morphing in a way and get picked up and, and become very powerful, even though the Cold War has, has ended. I think this book really teaches us a lot more about the historical nature of conspiracy theories. The conspiracy theories both draw on history and project it into the future, but they're also this sort of weird archive that gets cycled back into political life over and over again. I was talking to some Trump supporters last week um, when, when Trump was about to be arraigned outside the Manhattan Criminal Court, and one of them was saying that she was perfectly fine with Obama until he announced that he was going to create his own personal army. And I kind of thought, what are you talking about? And then I looked it up online and I found an Obama speech where he talks about a citizen army, which will be 6,000 healthcare providers to be deployed in an emergency, right? But, but the idea that a president might exactly have his own private army is really an idea that has a history. Yeah, well, and the idea that the federal government, a militarized federal government, right, as as former NRA leader uh, Wayne LaPierre put it, these jackbooted thugs, right, that that armed ATF agents and, and FBI agents were going to murder Americans, take away their guns, take away their rights. That is deeply, of course, ingrained in in American history, but the specifics of these theories, they do change. And you you can't really get into all the weeds of them because they're too hard to follow. And at some point they do become nonsensical, but I think they are revealing because some of the specifics, they are triggered by certain things in the atmosphere and the political climate. And so just a last example, which I have in the book too, which is George W. Bush, who 
of course, you know, very conservative, but a conspiracy theory starts to spread among uh, even some of Bush's former supporters, uh, people on the far right, that Bush is uh, trying to create a North American Union modeled on the European Union and establish a NAFTA superhighway that would destroy American sovereignty, let immigrants in, you know, come in just full blown and, you know, create this, this kind of super state of these three countries, right? And Bush at one point is asked about this theory and he said, you know, I'm not going to play that game. I've been in politics a long time and he rejected it out of hand. You know, I love that part of the book, the whole idea of the creation of the North American super state, because that spoke to the whole question of why the border is such an emotional issue for so many on the extreme right. And, you know, I often think about it in terms of this theory that, you know, immigrants will become voters and they'll vote for the Democratic Party. But that's only one little piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle is Democrats are deliberately destroying the border because they actually want one nation that incorporates all of these people. And it does, I think, get back at least in part to World Wars One and Two, And this idea that the United States is trampling on its own constitution, destroying its own constitution by ceding its sovereignty to the United Nations, Trilateral Commission, and other international bodies, who, by the way, are riddled with socialists, or socialist ideas. So there's this larger theory uh, that a lot of people on the far right have, had, have, had, and still have, uh, about uh, a one-world super state that destroys what makes America unique. Into that theory, I think a lot can be put into it and a lot gets put into it. And that includes immigration, the southern border, issues of race and the changing kind of multi, more multiracial composition of the country and um, also uh, wars overseas, right? And why, for example, the United States couldn't win in Vietnam or you know, why the United States uh, couldn't win in, in Iraq, right, in the most recent war. So you can see how these theories, you know, a lot of, you can, you can put into them what you want in a way. And what I love about this book, too, is that it shows how an organization can begin as a very, very cohesive thing and then diffuse itself throughout a much broader political movement. And you really emphasize that in the last third of the book which is why I was shocked when I Googled the John Birch Society and came up with a webpage. The society seems to be going strong. They have a whole set of FAQs. You know, here are all the misconceptions about the John Birch Society. We're against water fluoridation. That is a lie. Well, actually, they are against water fluoridation, but <laughs> um, they, they're on Facebook. So, so how do we think about the John Birch Society today as a movement, as a fundraising vehicle, as an ideological club? What is it? Well, what I try to do is, in the last third of the book, sketch the history of Birch ideas and a Birch apocalyptic anti-establishment mode of politics. And I try to trace that through conservative and Republican Party politics, arguing that even though the organization has withered, the ideas don't die, right? They live on, and that actually successors, both individuals and organizations, are more savvy than the Birchers were politically. 
they take these ideas, they draw from them, whether they're doing it consciously or not, they draw from them, but they also adapt them in a way that's politically more sellable to the supporters. And they do it within the Republican Party for the most part, or they, they begin more and more to work within the Republican Party as opposed to, say, third party runs, which um, you know, Birchers engage with and entertained and don't work very well. Uh, so it's really this ideological and stylistic legacy that I'm interested in. In terms of the, the Birch Society as an organization today, you know, look, I think they've been supplanted, right? To the extent that people know about the Birch Society, it's really more of a historical phenomenon, but it gets talked about as, oh, the conspiracy theorists, isolate, whatever their ideas were, and, you know, and they're making a comeback. But as an organization, I think they've been supplanted by MAGA and the Koch Foundation and the Bradley, you know, there are all these other groups and, and individuals. Uh, so the organization itself, I don't think has uh, much uh, clout. And yet you drop all sorts of breadcrumbs. So the Koch Foundation is a huge player in today's politics, and their father, Fred Koch, was a bircher. The challenge in the book is I don't want to suggest like a one-to-one, the birchers just suddenly morph into the Koch brothers and the Koch Foundation, although one of the sons was also a bircher. Um, uh, and so it's not like, you know, 40, 50 years later, aha, you know, the Birch Society has planted its flag, right? I try to I try to resist that. But what I try to look at are their individual connections, as in the case of the Bradley Foundation, because Harry Bradley was a, an early Birch funder, or Fred Koch was actually one of the original founders, of course. But look at also how a lot of books and ideas and theories that were foundational to the Birch movement those books still live on in many ways. And so Alex Jones, for example, the conspiracy theorist and fabulist, he was influenced by a book that was very popular among a lot of uh, Birchers. These books have, you know, they've had an afterlife in a way, and I think they've also inspired a set of media, not just outlets, but also arguments on the far right and uh, and have had their own afterlife in a sense. So- Matt, why should our listeners read your book now? Uh, I hope that readers will read it for uh, two reasons. One is the first two-thirds are really a history of the Birch Society. So, But not just the Birchers, but also their critics, conservatives who may not have been Birchers, but were somewhat sympathetic to it or were critical of it. And I hope that they will get a sense of those debates that happened in some ways a long time ago. But as you know, people have, have said to me, they feel very current, right? Debates about sex ed, teaching sex ed in schools, or what texts can appear in libraries, right? Book bans. Um, you can kind of go on uh, down the list. So, so there's that historical part. And then I hope that they will read it and get something out of this idea that you know, movements and organizations can fade but they can also bequeath legacies, right? That there can be an afterlife and that those legacies are very strange, like they're almost weird, but they do seep into our politics in a way. The ideas kind of live on. And looking at how those ideas get appropriated and adapted for contemporary purposes and and have a, have a real impact, right? Instead of the theme of the book is is that the right, the conservative movement, the Trump movement becomes radicalized and that the Birch Society played, if you think about 60 years uh, in American life, 
Uh, the British Society played a, a fairly central role, not the only uh, movement, but a central role in radicalizing the right. And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.